Let's talk for a minute about John McCain. There are these recent articles that have come out, quote, just how much of a maverick is John McCain or asking if he's really that helpful to the left. Is he really being that dissenting of the Republican Party line? And these usually mention that he's voted to confirm almost all of Trump's cabinet nominees. In fact, that's kind of the bulk of what any senator has done thus far is vote on these nominations. They suggest that he's maybe all talk, that he says he's a maverick, but really he's just been doing what every other GOP senator has been doing. But these articles either ignore or downplay pretty crucial political background info. Cabinet appointees are almost always confirmed. Obama had very little trouble with his appointees. It's true that some of Trump's appointees have been unique. Many of them pretty clearly are unqualified for the job. But the problem with accusing McCain about this is that it ignores the fact that he has a thin line to walk. He's not doing what John Lewis is doing, who has a Democratic base back at home. He's an elected Republican senator from a red state. He's obligated to serve his constituents. Furthermore, if he wants to continue to be of service to his country, he needs Republican voters in general to listen to him. If McCain talked and voted like a Democrat, he would not only lose all his credibility, but would probably have negative credibility with GOP voters, thus completely defeating the purpose of being a dissenting voice within the right. Finally, he's being very outspoken about looking into Trump's ties with Russia. He's doing this at significant political cost to himself for the sake of the protection of American democracy. This is a great example of not taking certain articles at face value. We need John McCain's and Lindsey Graham's. GOP senators who are willing to question the party line. We also need those kind of senators on the left, moderates who think clearly and for themselves and who put the country above their party affiliation. Near the end of this episode, Michael gets into some practical tips and we talk a little bit about McCain. And there's also a great article about McCain that just came out that I'm going to link to in the show notes at depolarizedpodcast.com. Now, speaking of Michael, this may be my favorite conversation I've had yet on this show. I love the work he's doing. I think you guys are going to find him fascinating. And he has some really great ideas for how to depolarize our country and our discourse. More from the perspective of an actual political operative, which of course I am not. He has actually spent time in the White House and knows how these things work, lives in D.C. He's also a man of great personal faith. He led the religious outreach of Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. And so he has a lot to say about where people of religious faith fit into this whole thing. So let's just get into it. Here we go with Michael Ware. So, Mr. Michael Ware, in your bio on Wikipedia, there is this curious little phrase that says... You are the youngest White House staffer in American history. I thought it might be fun to ask you to begin with, how did you end up in that role? What got you there? <laughs> it was a really incredible set of circumstances. Um, I came down to D.C. for college, um, went to the George Washington University, and um, my first year there the Democratic National Committee had a winter convention, which is basically the one time that presidential candidates get all of the uh, superdelegates in one place at one time. Uh, I was supposed to be leading a group to this convention. The problem is that I had the wrong date. And so I go to the Washington Hilton, which is where the convention was being held, and I'm looking all around, and it's my first political convention. So I kind of like expecting to open a door and like I'll find the convention. But after a while of, of kind of uh, <laughs> that not working out too well, I asked the receptionist, like, like where, where is this? And she goes, Oh honey, that's not for another couple days. <laughs> and so I am dejected and defeated and I'm leaving the hotel. And at this point in the story, you're like, this is your <laughs> this is your your march to the White House. Um, I'm leaving, walking through the hotel lobby to leave, and a young senator by the name of Barack Obama was walking in from meetings the day or two before the convention. Yeah, and so he would announce that he was running for president the next week. So he didn't have Secret Service with him yet. People knew who he was, but it wasn't like uh, he basically walked directly toward me. I told him I wanted to work for him, and 
10 months later, uh, after connecting with some of the staff, 10 months later, I was in Iowa for the Iowa caucus. And from there, I went to Chicago to do religious outreach from the campaign headquarters and things just kind of picked up a, a momentum. And I, I found a place to sit and operate and we won, <laughs> which was, which was a pivotal part of the yeah. part of the whole thing. And, uh, I went on to my first paid role was worked on the national prayer service for the president's first inaugural. And then I, I went to the white house for three and a half years, um, uh, leaving to serve, uh, as director of faith outreach for the reelect. And so, I mean, it was, it was, uh, I could talk a lot about the different factors that sort of played into that, how, how I was able to find a role, but it, it wouldn't have happened without that sort of, you know, providential moment of me not being able to get my calendar right. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that you came down to DC. So where did you come down from? Where'd you grow up? Yeah. Buffalo, New York. Buffalo. Buffalo. Dude, yeah. Buffalo. Okay. Just to get, I don't talk about my touring days really ever <laughs> on this podcast, but I, I was in a band for 10 years and Buffalo is like my favorite food city in yes. America. Paul's yes. Donuts. Oh man. Paul's oh. Donuts and Jim Steakout, dude. I would just weigh 400 pounds if I lived there. Man, uh, so my my wife's going to listen to this podcast now because I'm going to tell her that we talk about Paula's Donuts. My wife lived across the street from Paula's oh my when we gosh. high school. That's so and bad. So we'd go hang out and then go get some Paula's. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it wasn't like the primary reason I started dating her, but... <laughs> It didn't hurt. It was it was a perk, man. Well, it's like when I met my wife, she was from Seattle, and that was my favorite city at the time from touring. And so I didn't start dating her because she was from Seattle, but it certainly didn't hurt. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, no, but any if you're listening and you ever find yourself in Buffalo, New York, you need to go get a peanut butter covered whipped cream filled donut from Paula's. That's the best. That is the best. It is the best Game donut over. I've ever had in my life. I think. <laughs> Okay, so you came down from Buffalo, and you, I assume you were raised Christian if you ended up in this kind of prayer thing? No, man. You so, weren't. Um, okay. Well, so, you know, Buffalo, Rust Belt. So, you know, my family was Catholic. My immediate family was pretty nominally Catholic. And so I, uh, I actually grew up, you know, pretty antagonistic towards faith. It wasn't until I was 15 and— you know, there was a series of, of things that took me here, but my sister became a Christian a few years before me, started working on me like immediately. She convinced me to go to her youth group and I'm like, I'll go like pick up some more ammunition so I could show her what a yeah, big yeah. fuss all this is. Yeah. And so I go to the youth group, hate the youth group, couldn't fit in. People were kind of like clicky, but on my way out, a volunteer, a guy by the name of Joe Vacani which sounds like the most Buffalo name ever. Super Buffalo. Uh, and so Joe Vacani was handing out tracts of Romans, just Romans, no commentary, no Romans wrote, no, just the book. Yeah. And I took it home and read it, and it changed my life. And 72 hours later, I told my sister I had become a Christian. And that really set me on a – I was always interested in politics. My grandfather was World War II, greatest generation – came back, served as his community. And so the civic part was always there. Once I became a Christian, I was like, well, now I have to go to seminary, become a pastor, because like, what else does a, a good Christian do? But after a while, and talking to my pastor and some other folks that were in my life, decided I wanted to see what it meant to be faithful in public things. Um, yeah. And that's, that's what brought me to D.C. for, for school. And when you were in your first year, are you saying you were like a freshman undergrad or are you in your first year of uh, postgraduate? No, I was, I was a freshman undergrad. So when you were walking up to the then junior Senator Barack Obama, I was like yelling at a girl who liked the guitar player in my band <laughs> <laughs> and sulking, sulking in my room. Um, so, wow, just that's making me feel awful about what I've done in my life. Okay. So let's get back to uh, these questions about faith and presidents <laughs> and stuff. So you, you're you a great guest for this show, though, because working with a Democratic president on issues of religion, that yeah. is really a flashpoint. That's, that's kind of where a lot of cultural clash happens in America is between those two worlds. That's right. These days, anyway. Yeah. So 
what kind of decisions did you need to make and do you continue to make in terms of like being able to speak to both sides? I'm asking you kind of personally. Uh, is there language that you you avoid or use? Is there a type of a ho- cultural homework that you do? You know what I mean? Like very few people can, yeah. can do that. So how do you do it? Yeah, so I, I walk through this quite a bit in my book, Reclaiming Hope. Uh, a couple, I mean, so there's there's a lot here. Uh, one story I tell is when I took the job to lead faith outreach on the president's reelection campaign, I made a commitment and I didn't just make it to myself. I actually told told six friends, I believe four of whom were Republican. So it wasn't just yeah. sort of like folks who supported the president. I asked them to hold me accountable that I would never, within my power, I couldn't I didn't have final sign off on everything that came out of the campaign, of course, right. but within my power that we would never claim that Barack Obama was the candidate for people of faith. Hmm. I thought that that was important. I had seen that sort of claim and that sort of moral burden put on voters from previous campaigns. And I just saw my job on the campaigns. My job in the White House was a bit different because you're not trying to get elected. You're, you're serving the public. But on the campaigns, I just saw my job as advancing the best case that the president had for people of faith and holding it out there for them to either accept or reject. Yeah. Uh, that I wasn't trying to make declarations about who was a real Christian, who was not, about, about who, you, you know, who was a good person and who was not. I just tried to make the strongest case I could uh, on the president's behalf to people of faith and let them decide. And I think that came through in, in the outreach and communications that we did. Uh, and I think it's a healthier way of going about it. And it was a healthier way for, for me to function. And so I think, I think that was a key thing. The other thing I'd say is even when I met the president, when I first joined the campaign, I was very clear with myself about the fact that that politics was not ultimate, and that some people of faith don't have the luxury or the the burden of taking their marching orders from a political platform. We take our marching orders from something higher, and so that that sort of sets politics in a way that does not make it unimportant, but also gives you, I think, a healthier perspective. That's awesome, man. Um, before we talk about the evangelical church, because that's where I tend to want to go, something that I've been learning about in the last few years as I've been reading more and, and chatting with people is just this realization that even though I grew up white evangelical, there is a whole predominantly African-American church tradition in America that actually has like an illustrious past <laughs> and yes. has been very involved in politics. So my first question to you about this is, did you mostly reach out, like when you were doing the, the faith reach out stuff, was it mostly with the African-American church? Was it a mix? Was it half and half? Yeah, so it was, it was everybody. I, I mean, so obviously when you're on a campaign, you're going to be talking more to just because those are the folks who want to engage with the campaign with your supporters. Yeah. And for the president, given the fact his first job as a community organizer was working with mostly black churches on the south side of Chicago. And so Reverend Alvin Love, who is now a senior official in the Baptist Convention and a whole range of folks from Chicago. And then as the president went national, he he extended, has relationships with with black clergy across the country. And so I did a ton of work with the black church, but did, you know, on the campaign, we were reaching out to to everybody. Um, so people of all different faith backgrounds. But if you read my book, you'll see I have a special place in my heart for the black church. It was one of the things that brought me to faith. And then I've had a decade of working with black church leaders and seeing their faithfulness and seeing their integrity. And, you know, the present from, you know, Charleston to so many other moments throughout his presidency to, to Selma, you know, that, that black church played a pivotal role. Yeah. Now, obviously, evangelicals as a whole don't tend to be super open to Democrat presidents, at least not white evangelicals. What was your experience in reaching out to these groups when you were trying to get Obama reelected? You know, the reelection campaign was a very different campaign from 2008. And so when when the president came out to the scene in 2008, 
he didn't have a lot of the baggage that other Democratic candidates had. And so 2008 was about aspiration and open doors and the idea that we were going after every voter. In my operation in 2012, we tried to operate on the same on the same level in the same way. But the overall campaign strategy was definitely it was more of a you know what we call a base election about turning out those who are at the core of your support, right. and unfortunately not doing as much outreach to those uh, who are perhaps persuadable. I think we saw that strategy calcify in 2016 on behalf of Democrats. Now in 2012, we still the president did interviews with faith community. He met with faith leaders. He delivered specific messages asking for the votes of evangelicals and Catholics. And uh, some of those videos and messages are still you know, archived now. But when I took the job uh, in May, May of 2012, it was two weeks after he had announced that he had evolved on the issue of gay marriage. Uh, it was in the midst of the war on women, war on religion dichotomy. And so it was, it was, we definitely had some defense to play. On the other hand, Mitt Romney selected as his running mate someone whose best known policy agenda item, which was Paul Ryan's budget, had already drawn the opposition of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the National Association of Evangelicals, not to mention a whole range of religious groups to their left. And so it was a bit of a, a there, there was some defense to be played. There was definitely some some places that the president had made some decisions that sections of the faith community opposed, but there were also opportunities to to, again, deliver a case that said, Look, you may not agree on A, B, and C, but let's at least put on the table X, Y, and Z. Did you have to contend with any of the claims about Obama being a secret Muslim? Or given that you were trying to reelect a Democratic president, I imagine it may not have been worth your time because anybody sort of peddling that would – there's no way they're going to vote for him anyway. Well, uh, I had to deal with it a bit on the campaign, but especially when I was at the White House. And let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, Um, that I mean, there's still people today who say that they believe that Obama was a secret Muslim his whole eight years and was part of like a some kind of conspiracy to have Sharia law take over American governance. What I want to ask first is, did that stuff affect? Obama on a personal level or like what was his reaction to those those rumors? Yeah, so I believe it was at the National Prayer Breakfast speech in 2010 he addressed those kinds of public questionings of his faith. Uh, you know, A he said that they kind of that they crossed the line and B he said that you know they were reminders to him and Michelle, I believe the quote in the speech um, was that they had to seek the kingdom first. And so it's important to understand that politics is a part of all of this. And so yeah. I talk in Reclaiming Hope about about how often critiques of the president or, or accusations that the president was Muslim was actually amplified by the White House and by the president himself. And so it's it's important not to be too you know doe eyed looking at this stuff. But what I've told evangelicals that I'm, I'm working with is presidents, politicians are not avatars; they're human beings. And so, at the very least, particularly because a lot of the folks making these accusations didn't know the president. I mean, I, I prayed with the president. I've been in meetings with the president, and religious leaders. A lot of the people making these accusations have not spent two minutes with the man. And right. so the, the the question I put forth is, if you're holding a politician that you've never met to a higher sort of standard or saying things about them that you wouldn't say about members of your own congregation, then, then maybe you need to Maybe you need to check yourself. So are you kicking people out of your congregation because they have a different view on issue A, B, or C? 
if you have a member of your congregation that you don't agree with their political views, but they they say that they believe in Jesus Christ, do you undermine their faith or do you encourage it? Uh, I wrote recently that uh, it was a major missed opportunity for the church that could have looked at the president's claim of faith as this brilliant, this guy who was broadly held as you know brilliant and pro-science and kind of all this stuff and still said that, you know, what Jesus did on the cross was was an act of grace towards him. You know, like if, pe- if people looked at what this man said about the gospel from the White House, from the East Room of the White House, you would think that that would have been a major evangelization opportunity. And instead, we, we kind of missed it. Uh, and we need to reflect on uh, how much we prioritize politics over over the faith in some cases. Well, so that's interesting. I never would have thought of it as an evangelism opportunity, but I guess that makes sense. You've got an openly Christian president who is also esteemed sort of worldwide. But of course, you've got you have pretty entrenched politics and identity politics uh, at play as well. And even as you said that, I, I had in the back of my mind, well, I know what the answer to that is doesn't matter. He's pro-choice. So if we exalt a president who claims Christ, but is pro-choice, then we are just deluding ourselves and the rest of the world. And so might as well just fight him tooth and nail until we can get someone in there who's pro-life. Yeah. What do you say to people who come back and say, well, he can't be a Christian politician. He supports abortion. It's like full stop. Yeah. So I, I actually think that had their efforts to confront the president on the life issue would have been stronger if they had – and right, this isn't everybody, so we're not making sweeping statements. I'm talking primarily about D.C. DC advocacy groups, that they would have been much more effective if they had treated the president with integrity on issues like whether he's a secret Muslim, uh, then their critiques on the life issues would have been taken more seriously. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I write a whole chapter on abortion in Reclaiming Hope. And in the first five months of his presidency, at the height of his political capital, Barack Obama went to Notre Dame University and delivered a message. Traditionally, if a Democratic candidate is going to go to a Catholic institution, they're going to give a message on the environment or poverty or something where Democrats generally uh, agree more with Catholics than on an issue like life. But the president went and spoke about abortion. That was his whole talk. And it was about how we can find common ground ways to reduce the number of women seeking abortions in this country. And uh, I was a part of a two-year policy process uh, where we looked at doing just that. And for an array of political and uh, sort of policy reasons from both sides, uh, that effort never bore the fruit that the president kind of committed to in in May of of 2009. And that's something that we need to, that pro-life Americans need to understand how that went down um, if they're going to effectively advance their agenda in the the coming years. Okay. Now, now we're talking about something that, that gets my uh, heart beating. Not that the rest of the conversation wasn't (laughs) good, of course, but so you're saying there was like almost a plan at the presidential level to sort of link arms between pro-life and pro-choice groups and reduce the number of abortions? Yes. How close did this plan get to being implemented? I mean, very close. Very close to rolling out. What did the plan consist of? Well, well, you know, again, it, it's a big, uh, I write it, it's an entire chapter okay. of my book. So but, we can, yeah, um, well, give us some bullet points though. We looked at, Everything from supporting maternal health to strengthening adoption to addressing communities that are particularly at risk for unintended pregnancies like those out of foster care. Uh, We looked at pregnancy prevention. Uh, We looked at workplace flexibility and and stopping pregnancy discrimination through the EEOC. I mean, we, we looked at we looked at everything on the table. The one thing that was not on the table or else it wouldn't be common ground was making abortion legal. Yeah. And so we met with over 100 advocacy groups and leaders. There were multiple drafts of what this was like. And our polarized culture war politics on both sides prevented it from 
from coming out to the public. This I mean, is this the was, saddest conversation I've had in a year right now. Well, you know, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> okay, so I want to ask about how each side stalled that, but can you just throw out a few examples of like the types of policies? Now I have to read your book because I, I just have to read this whole chapter, but just just a couple things that like we could have in the back of our minds. So in some of the policies were enacted through other means and under other uh, justifications. So yeah. we got the adoption tax credit made permanent as part of the Affordable Care Act, boosting maternal health support through both additional financial support, but also things like this program called Text for Baby, which is something that the Department of Health and Human Services runs, where if you text a number when you're pregnant, they will text you I believe even into early maternity, you know, it's at this stage in the process when you need to start seeing your doctor. It's at this stage when you need to take your, take this vitamin. Um, So it helps, especially for women without a social network, it helps walk them through, like helps them feel not alone. Like, oh, if you want to bring this baby to term, you're going to have someone walking with you each, each step of the way. Things like, again, stepping up EEOC prosecution of pregnancy discrimination cases so that uh, we actually have a, you know, it contributes to a culture where we welcome life uh, as opposed to uh, disincentivizing it through firing women because they get pregnant. So again, like there's a, there's a whole range of policy items that were on the, on the table. I'll, I'll tell you why it didn't. Well, again, it's a, it's a very, very big issue. So like a lot of why I wrote the book is because there's, there's stuff to convey that doesn't work in sort of 90 second you sure. know, sound bites. But a couple of the reasons why it didn't happen on the pro-life side, just what you said, they had spent the entire election campaign in 2008 saying that Barack Obama was the most pro would be the most pro-abortion president ever. And so you can't you can't run against a guy and rile up your voters saying that this guy's going to be pro-abortion and then partner with him to reduce abortions. That then you're invalidating your own claim. Jeez. On the pro-choice side, many pro-choice ad, uh, advocates viewed it even the aim of reducing abortions as a sort of rhetorical concession that abortions maybe aren't the best thing. That maybe abortions aren't a social good. And so they even separate from policy which generally, if they were for the aim, it was because they viewed it as an effective way to increase Title X, basically, contraception funding. But many of them didn't even support the aim because they viewed it as a concession to the pro-life side that it would be a good thing to reduce abortions. And so it's just like an awfulness on all sides, right? Like just like I am so depressed right now. I am so sad. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I'm so sad that I'm laughing. This is yeah. so f***ed, dude. <laughs> I ne- I almost never swear on this show. But, okay, there's some stuff to unpack here. So, you know, yesterday or two days ago, I was driving downtown Seattle, and I, I saw, like, uh, a poster. You know, like, people put up show posters or whatever kind of posters they paste them on. And it was, like, a diagram of a a woman's reproductive system saying, abortion is freedom. So that's yeah. a perfect example of like the far left activist front of pro-choice, basically reducing the act of ending a life or at least a potential life to like the same thing as like getting the right to vote or something, completely disregarding the messiness and the emotional and ethical complications. Right. And then on the right, you have groups, advocacy groups who have dialed up their rhetoric to 11 for what they, be, you know, what they probably believe are good intentions, right. uh, to to get some agenda passed that will save millions of lives, uh, if you can make abortion illegal or mostly illegal or very very hard to do, and those people or those groups need to save their face because of their messaging or maybe even some of their in, internal vitriol, and the whole deal gets scrapped. I cannot express how f- angry I am right now about that. So he- here's, however, here's the part. You, your book is called Reclaiming Hope. And yeah. there is something hopeful about the fact that it got close. Yes. It got close. It almost happened. Yes. But, but just to 
write the most dep- the most depressing thing Great, about it. Great, thanks, Michael. What is it? Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's not that what happened with the DC activist groups. It's that they then turn around and justify the inaction, justify the polarization to voters in completely misleading ways that because we are so polarized, we accept with such ease. And so, okay, right, give like, me an example. Well, right. So the all of these fights. I mean, right. So the the this whole thing, in addition to the contraception mandate, was basically summarized as the war on women and the war on religion in 2012. Right. And so religious groups supposedly didn't want women to get contraception access at all. Yeah, you're saying yeah. the left called it a war on women and the right called it a war on religion. That's right. Yeah. And so if you're if you're an American who would generally be dispositioned to say, wow, like if we could get if we could agree on a common set of policies that would reduce abortion but also keep it legal, which is like most Americans want to see abortion remain legal but also believe it's too available and yeah. the right is too frequently used. Yeah. If, if you're one of those Americans, um, you would generally say, like, yeah, let's do that. But then after six months of messaging from the political parties that say, no, the, the other side doesn't, doesn't actually want to reduce abortions. They want more control over your ovaries or, or you know, your or, church. Or, yeah, right, exactly. Uh, then we need to build up the kind of even if we agree ultimately with the goals of those who are messaging that way to us, we need to build up the ability to reject those. That kind of messaging. Who we agree with on policy grounds, but who are emotionally manipulating us and simplifying our opposition in a way that's not helpful to building political community. I'm speechless right now, which for those who know me is rare. I'm so I'm so frustrated. Um, okay, oh, shit. <laughs> this is like, oh, dude. Okay, I have spent since I was old enough to know that this is what I wanted. So maybe 17 or 18 years old. So I've spent 15 years. Every time I talk about abortion with anyone, I say. It seems like there's got to be a way that the two sides could come together <laughs> to at least reduce abortions. And you're telling yeah. me it almost happened. Yeah. And it didn't happen. But you're also telling me, Dan, the whole reason you started your podcast was to combat the very thing that kept that from happening. So That's I feel exactly right. a clarity of purpose. Yeah. But so much <laughs> anger right now. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I wish I had a treadmill in my studio and I could just <laughs> run some of this off. Um Okay, okay. What the hell do we do about this, Michael? I assume you have some ideas. Yeah. So first, we need to disinvest ourselves of our partisan identity so that better, higher things can take its place. Everyone listening to this show is already trying to do that. But, yes. But yeah, that's so, of course, that's important. And so what that means is, it means a few things. One thing it means is actually having as voting criteria, not just the policy positions of our politicians, but the, the type of culture they contribute to. And what levers they're willing to use and what levers they're willing not to use in order to influence us and to get our vote. So we're talking about civics now, basically. We're talking yes. about we're talking about an informed electorate who has positions that they hold uh, and who can identify the positions that their politicians or their prospective politicians hold, but who hold those politicians to a standard of civic engagement, politeness, non-lowest common denominator talk. But here's where I go with that. I can imagine people on both sides saying, well, that's what Obama did. He was like the most polite president ever since everyone stopped speaking in British English. And (laughs) look what it got him. 
It got yeah. him secret Muslim. It got him birtherism. It got the Tea Party going. You know, it, yeah. it got government shutdowns. So for someone who is like, hey, man, I mean, I think that I would I would argue that maybe more than half of the Democratic base who is politically engaged and paying attention is like, screw that, dude. We tried yes. it. It didn't work. We need to take the Republicans' tactics and use them against them. And these are the calls for blocking Neil Gorsuch are basically, hey, right. they blocked Garland through ridiculous means, demeaning the American process. We should demean the American process back at them right. and fight fire with fire. And that would be the opposite of what you are recommending, basically. Right? Yes. Well, right. And so we'd be having something of a different conversation if Hillary Clinton was our president right now, totally. but she's not. And so President Obama's model has been proved out. He's been our only Democratic president of this century so far. And so, so like that should feed into our political strategy at some level. Um, the other thing I'd say is, and this is kind of kind of difficult, may surprise some of your listeners. One of the reasons why I wrote Reclaiming Hope was to kind of challenge the notion that everything was done to bring the country together in the Obama administration that could have been done. I actually wrote the book in part to to challenge. It pretty much exactly what you said, which is like this this idea on the left that, oh, like we tried playing nice if uh, a broader section of Americans won't take our olive branches, you know, under Obama, then they'll never take them. And part of what yeah. I try and do, especially at the intersection of faith and politics, is say like, actually, there are some concrete instances when conflict was intentionally stoked, mm. the, the pathway to bringing us together as Americans was not taken. Um, and so, you know, it is my sort of, uh, it's You're saying my that idea. action was taken by Obama and his administration when he could have taken the high road. That's right. Can you give us some examples of that? Cause one of my favorite things to do, and, and people are probably getting sick of it is I love having people on the left criticize the left because <laughs> I think it's yeah. one of the things that we need to hear. And I, I describe myself as center left. Some people think I'm farther to the center. Some people think I'm farther to the left, but yeah. I don't spend very much time thinking about how politicians I like have failed. Yeah. Uh, it's just not in human nature to do that. So can you throw out a couple examples of, of decisions you think Obama made poorly? Yeah. Well, and, and right. I think it's important to, in, in a polarized age, so so one one thought thread that I've been on over the last six months, really since I wrote my book, which is what are practical thinking about it very much in the terms of like spiritual disciplines, so like Dallas Willard, Richard Foster kind of stuff, or what are spiritual disciplines we could put in place to uproot what we know is a deeply infectious problem of polarization. Dude, are you um, my brother and just no one told us? I'm working <laughs> on a curriculum right now with that exact that's like the last part of the curriculum. It's like <laughs> praxis of getting out of this political identity. Yeah. Jeez, man. We could have been eating Paul's donuts together and just <laughs> riding our BMXs to to junior high. I was born in the wrong city. All right, yeah. go go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you. So, I want to answer your question, but I just want to I mean, this podcast is largely about polarization, so I'm sure yes. you're listeners, but I just want to uh, – political polarization is at all-time highs right now. Yeah. There was a study that came out in 2014 out of Stanford that proved this out, although we already knew it based on our lives. It's one of those things yeah. where, the, where the research you know, confirms what we already knew. Uh, one of the most striking findings of this study was that in the 1960s, parents were asked, who would you not want your child to marry? And – the top responses were, were, I would not want my child to marry someone of a different race, and I would not want my child to marry someone of a different religion. 2014, the same question is asked. If the parent was a Republican, I would not want my child to marry a Democrat. Yep. If the parent was a Democrat, I would not want my child to marry a Republican. And you think about what that means if we are organizing our communities, our most intimate personal relationships around political identity. And what the generational impact of that would be. And it's it's just profound. It becomes difficult to uh, new questions of what it means to have a, a nation, <laughs> to have social cohesion really are brought to the fore. Yeah. Um, and so this polarization problem is deep. One of the uh, spiritual kind of disciplines 
that I've been trying to install and been trying to ask of people is you should spend more time criticizing your own party than you do the other party. Yeah. You should at the very least hold your own party to the same standard, at least the same standard that you hold the other party. And so, you know, there's one way to look at this Gorsuch nomination as, yes, the Republicans did it. We need to get them back. To me, a more restorative approach would be, is there a way that we can actually restore some of the norms that Republicans broke by not taking up Garland? Right. And so can Democrats attach their vote for Gorsuch or they're allowing Gorsuch to pass with a vote on a measure that would require the Senate to hold a vote within three or six months of every Supreme Court nomination. Because that forces the Republicans to admit that they that they did something wrong with the Garland nomination. And it says that this won't ever happen again. I get the Democratic impulse to not just want to let the Republicans get off scot-free, but the way to do that while restoring some of the processes that have helped this country stay afloat for over two centuries would be to reestablish the norm, not to uh, cede to the lowest common denominator uh, of the precedent of what the Republicans did. Yeah. So that's important. Back to your original question. Well, right first, so Sort of what happened with the with the common ground on abortion piece is, you know, it got into 2011, late 2011, and there was a re-election around the bend, and pro-lifers were mobilizing against the president on something like the contraception mandate, and so yeah, that was they, the big flashpoint in in the ACA. Yeah, and so basically the decision, well, part of the decision was. Look, we're never going to win these people over anyways. We have a re-election coming up. It will be much more productive for us to talk about how Republicans wanted. It will be hard to deliver our message about Republicans wanting to drag women to the 1950s, which is actual language that was used, if we're a year and a half out from the election standing with pro-lifers releasing a common yeah. ground. So, oh, so that's man. Okay. Here's another mistake, which is the contraception mandate, which the Supreme Court held up the ACA in a number of uh, on a number of different issues. The one area where they did not hold up the ACA was on this contraception mandate. So it was unconstitutional from the beginning. Well, so they or didn't it was have, it was proven to be unconstitutional anyway. Well, so they didn't have to decide it on constitutional grounds because they judged that it it, it was rejected on grounds of statute. So the Supreme Court will okay. try and. Yeah, um, but but yes, the Supreme Court said that the Obama administration's policy was wrong. Um, yeah, uh, really twice in the Hobby Lobby case, and then in the case of the Little Sisters of the Poor. Which, by the way, if you're in a Supreme Court case against the Little Sisters of the Poor, how you bad might, are those optics? You might want to think if maybe you're not <laughs> approaching things in the right way. Um, I know, right? That you can you can you think of an organizational name? that makes you look like more of a dick than suing <laughs> little sisters of the poor. Yeah. That's like a uh, Robin hood, uh, Prince John move right there. That's right. just like triple the taxes. Yeah. The you attorney know? general versus tiny Tim. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so basically the entire middle section of my book, five chapters are on five discrete, issues, controversies like this. Okay. And so I have a chapter on the HHS contraception mandate, have a chapter on the president's evolution on marriage, have a chapter on uh, his second inaugural and, and the controversy surrounding one of the pastors chosen to give a benediction. And, and so those are all areas that fall into this bucket of the administration uh, in some ways pursuing the path of most resistance yeah, uh, right. and, and, and stoking conflict where it didn't need to be stoked. Because where we sit today is after two Supreme Court cases, after more than eight adjustments to the original mandate they set out, the administration is able has been able to give greater deference to religious freedom while also maintaining that women's access to contraception has not been harmed and has actually been increased as a result of the mandate with additional religious freedom protections. And so what that means to me 
is if you're able to, over the course of four years, six years now, give more deference to religious freedom, but not harm the policy goal of giving more women access to contraception, then you were overreaching. You were doing more than you needed to do to restrict religious freedom. One quick announcement. We do now have the Patreon campaign going which is a way for you guys to financially support the show if you want to. It starts at only $3 a month, and everybody who signs up will have access to a patron-only chat between you guys and me once a month where we'll talk about the show or anything else you want to talk about. I'll take your recommendations. I'll answer your questions as best as I can, and I'll get feedback from my most dedicated listeners and friends. I'm really looking forward to that. If you're interested, you can go to patreon.com slash depolarize, or there is a button that says become a patron at depolarizepodcast.com. Okay, I love this idea of you should be criticizing your own party at least as much as you criticize the other party. And it makes me think of like a church or even a family You know, if you just sit around, spend all your time saying, man, other families suck. Like they aren't as (laughs) good as mine. They don't love each other as much. They, they aren't as moral, um, or, you know, oh, those Methodists across town. Like (laughs) if you spend all your time, that's just not removing the log in your own eye to use Jesus's language. And that's just kind of like plainly a jerk move. Why do you think, and I think anybody would, would acknowledge that about their own family to say, no, you know, it's, it's really, it is good to sort of, how am I failing my kids or in what ways could, you know, our family vacations be, could we spend more quality time together? Um, and most people would agree, at least on the face of it, that to sit around talking shit about another family all day is not a very good use of time. Why does that change when it comes to politics, is it because it's our identity? Yes. Okay, yes, so when is. you say your political brand or your political team is your identity, what do you mean by that? I, I mean that not a lot of predictions made about 2016 were accurate. But the one thing I knew going into November 8th was that people were going to wake up on the morning of November 9th And at least half the country was going to feel like they no longer belonged in their own nation anymore. Yeah. When our political parties are primarily about belonging, that is a dangerous place for our politics to be. And what it does is it actually allows politics to determine our values as opposed to our values determining our politics. And so there are so many examples of this. One of them is there was research done, like in 2014, white evangelicals were asked, do you believe a candidate's moral character, and, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it was basically, yeah. do you believe a can- your candidate's moral character is an important qualification for their office? And two-thirds of evangelicals said, yes, it is an important character. Well, they asked the same question in 2016, when Donald Trump happened to be the Republican nominee, And it completely flipped. Only one-third of evangelicals said that moral character was important, an important quality for a president to have. And, you know, you just say, well, what what changed? Oh, you're not even able to hold in tension the fact that, well, I may decide I have to vote for Donald Trump out of the options available, but – I still believe moral character is important. No, it actually, the politics actually dissolves the moral convictions to suit the time. To suit the political so, need. Right. And so if you if you poll Republican views on immigration reform under George W. Bush, they're much higher than they were under Obama. If you poll uh, Hispanic and African-American support of gay marriage before the president, came out in support of it and after it's much i mean it flipped almost overnight so now you're you're applying this to the left as well not just the right here oh yeah, yeah. absolutely and so we need to stop since reclaiming hope has come out pe- people are like oh you must feel like so politically homeless <laughs> and, and, and my response to that is look the crisis is not 
that we are politically homeless. The crisis is that we ever thought that we could make our home in politics. Yeah. The, the, the crisis is that we are looking for a politics that will perfectly suit our individual needs when that is not what politics is about. Politics is an inher- at least in America is an inherently pluralistic, imperfect process. And if you are going to politics looking for your inner needs to be met, if you're going to politics looking to feel a sense of belonging or a sense of inspiration, which I'm not saying it's evil to find those things there, but when you're trying to fill a hole in yourself with political action, then it's very easy to understand how the change in a party platform could change someone's personal views about a topic. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Man, I, I probably shouldn't even be talking about this yet because I'm still working on it. But basically this curriculum that may be a, become a book or like a series of videos or something is about how Christians particularly ought to be well suited to not have their identity be in their political party. Because theoretically our identity is that we are children of a loving creator of the universe. Yes. And yet you don't find that very often in the church, yeah. even on the left. I'm using this stuff to push at Christians, but could we also apply this message to people who are not faithful or is it, is it actually harder for an atheist or a non-religiously affiliated person to make this break identity wise? Do you have a, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah. I mean, so we really could, we, we may be brothers. I mean, that is my book. That is the last chapter of Reclaiming Hope. <laughs> I guess I don't have uh, to write mine now. I'll right. Just point people no, to yours. It is, it is um, that Christians have available to them spiritual resources that make things possible that would otherwise not be possible. Now, that is not to say that an other-centered politics cannot be found among people who are not all I'm saying is that there are unique resources available to Christians that make that easier. And so you could yeah, find, I'm you saying find, that too. So you could find examples. I guess what I would say is as Christians, we don't believe that these are just sort of nice ideas that if you can bring yourself to uh, believe them, they might be helpful to you. Like I actually believe we're talking about reality here. Yeah. And so the, the question for me is not just uh, can – these ends, or, or can this different type of politics be met through other means? Like, I, I just have a fundamental claim that uh, that Christianity offers unique resources that are real and tangible and, and palpable. And so, so yes, I think I think faith plays a big role. But the if we can't agree on that, then what are the areas where a cross face with those of no faith at all can we find common? Yeah, goals that's what I was just work, thinking. And yeah. work together, um, uh, which I, I've done my entire political, you know, political life. But I'd still want to keep on the table this this idea of if there's such a thing as real hope, which I believe there is, then why why go for a counterfeit? It would be really interesting, though. It'd be cool to kind of throw the gauntlet down and say to some non-religious politically active people or groups like, Hey, like, can we, can we even reach across the religion divide to agree that civil discourse is important and that these civic norms are what hold our democracy up? I think that that would be a phenomenal, um, partnering in an ongoing conversation between religious America and non-religious America. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's happening. Um, there's this guy, David Blankenhorn, who started something called the Better Angels Initiative or Better Angels Project. Yeah, and I've he's, seen that. He's working across religious demographics. I believe it's Yale, though it may be Harvard. I think, I think it's the Harvard Pluralism Project. Uh, and Diana Eck, I just remembered the name, Diana Eck, who I believe is an atheist, who is promoting this kind of work. I've become recently enamored with the work of Alan Wolf, who's a public intellectual, secular Jew, um, who, who actually just last night I was reading, he has a chapter in his book, The Future of American Liberalism, where he talks about romanticism and politics, that kind of versus proceduralism, which which is like one recommend, recommendation to your readers is to read that essay in his book 
and just try and not think about the current circumstances we're in right now. Yeah, we're, uh, we're going to link to that essay on the show notes on depolarizedpodcast.com. Great. What was it uh, called again? Tell us one uh, more time. I believe so. It's the essay on romanticism, mm-hmm. and it's in his book. It's either the future of liberalism or the future of American liberalism. Okay, well, if we can find an online version, we will link to the essay. Otherwise, we'll link to the book. Great, perfect. And, and so, so yeah, I think in an increasingly diverse America, um, it is now not just a moral and civic imperative to partner across diverse lines. It's actually now an essential practical imperative. In other yeah. words, you just won't get things done unless you do it. So people who are not willing to, to partner across divides, it won't just be that there are pursuing uh, political strategies that are, I, I think, undermine community, but it's, it's that they more times than not just won't get what they want. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that it's not, it's not politically wise um, to, to do so. So I'm going to ask my last question of you. And normally my last question to guests is, hey, what's the left doing wrong? What's the right doing wrong? But we've actually spent quite a bit of time talking about that. And it's, it's the same thing. It's allowing our politics to be our identity rather than allowing our politics to be a part of just what we believe and, and how we act in the world. So my last question is this, zooming out. Some of us who have this dream of a civil, (laughs) a regular civil engagement between people who disagree and and a non-deadlocked shutdown government and all of this, we dream of a centrist party uh, or or some kind of an actual third party, um, like a moderates party to, to rise up. When I think that's impossible, I start to think of things more like not a party, but a somewhat formalized voting block that is organized and that demands to both parties court us. We have, we are moderates. Are either of those things possible is only the second one possible. What do you think? Yeah. So this is the most controversial argument I make in my book, I think, which is we have the highest number of political independence that we've ever had as a country. Yeah. 40, 43% of Americans are politically independent. And what that, what that means is that in a two party system of government, it means that 43% of Americans have unilaterally disarmed from one of the primary levers they have at affecting change and influence in our political system. Interesting. And so we wonder why our parties have become so polarized well, one of the reasons is that everyone who thinks that they have common sense, everyone who thinks that, well, I couldn't be a part of either of those political parties because I don't, uh, I disagree with both on significant issues, have left the parties. And so all that's left in the two parties are people who agree with every dot and tittle of their yeah. uh, party platform. The activists, basically. That's right. When I would argue that what the Democratic Party needs now more than ever are uh, people who are proud to be called Democrat, uh, identify as Democratic, who are speaking into the party, advocating for life. What the Republican Party needs now more than ever are people who are proud to be Republican, identify as Republican, identify Republican Party meetings, who speak up for the refugee and the vulnerable and for the immigrant. Yeah, um, or the regulation of big corporations or something like that. Right. Well, right. Yeah. And so those voices, all of that to say, you know, I'm for really a whole range of civic engagement. And so if people are want to invest in a third party, I wouldn't reject that. I'm, I'm more speaking out against political independence. They actually don't. They're not part of the independent party. They're political independence because they can't find any party that – you know, suits their needs. But my primary argument would be actually invest in a political party. And parties are not meant to influence you. You're meant to influence the political party you find yourself in. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Michael, this has been one of the best conversations I've had in five years. Thank you. It was great here. Yeah. 
appreciate it. So the book is called Reclaiming Hope. It's available everywhere books are sold, correct? Yep, yep. Just came out a couple weeks ago. And you're, you're Michael Ware. Your last name is spelled W-E-A-R. How can people find you online otherwise? I know you're on Twitter quite a bit. Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Michael R. Ware. Um, and then folks can just go to my website at michaelware.com. Man, thank you so much. And I will be hounding you to have you back on in a few months again. I would, I would love that. That would be great. Man, aren't you just grateful that that guy exists? That's how I feel. Um, if you guys would, consider donating to the show or supporting it monthly at patreon.com slash depolarize, or there's a link at depolarizepodcast.com. We're going to have some show notes up there as well on depolarizepodcast.com with Michael's book and that McCain article. As always, you can find me on Twitter, D-A-N-K-O-C-H, and you can join the vibrant Depolarized Podcast discussion group on Facebook, which is a continual source of delight and encouragement to me as I wade through these sometimes disgusting, thick waters of depolarization. Please share this episode with a friend if you think they'd like it. And next week, we have David Dayen, who is an expert on financial reporting, the financial crisis, the mortgage crisis. And oh my gosh, the dude is awesome. He knows a ton. That conversation was great. Really excited for you guys to hear it. And we'll see you next week.